Hi, I'm Dom Fay. And I'm Zach Mander. And welcome to So What, the show from Origin that questions everything you thought you knew about energy and explores the solutions that exist today. This season, we're trying to answer the question, how do we actually run a grid on renewables? And so far, we've tried to address that by focusing on some key areas that'll be vital to the energy transition. We've explored how to shut down coal-fired power plants and how much switching to renewables will cost us. We've also looked at how different industries are transitioning and the role of technology, like artificial intelligence. And Dom, we've even explored how your Christmas lights display is going to make it difficult for everyone to keep the lights on. That is not at all what we spoke about. It's the logical conclusion. You could scale it back a bit. I've told you this a thousand times. I will not compromise on festive cheer. But if it does help, I have switched to LEDs. Anyway, it's been a bit of a journey so far, Dom, and one of the issues that we've discovered is our entire grid is moving away from being reliant on centralised carbon-intensive energy sources across to distributed renewables like solar and wind. Now, obviously, solar and wind generate electricity intermittently, so how am I going to keep the lights on at night? Well, remember how I told you to power down the discussion on batteries a few episodes ago? Hmm, Was this before or after our chat about the iconic 1997 film Flubber? You've been banned from all Flubber references. Wasn't that just last episode? No, it's a season-wide ban. Oh, I've got to cut a lot out of this episode then. But fine, yes, I do remember us powering down battery chat. Well, it's time to power it back up. Double A's, triple A's, lithium ion. These are all words people are familiar with. And as it turns out, batteries of all sizes are vital to the future of our energy grid. Well, I've been stashing away batteries for months now, Zach. Do you know it takes me about a full year to build up enough AA's to get everything going through Christmas? Hoarding AA's won't work, but as we increase the amount of renewables in our grid, we do need to figure out a way to store all the excess solar power we're generating during the day so we can keep the lights on at night. And interestingly, some fairly old technology is key to unlocking the grid of the future. We're walking over to a wall now full of buttons and switches and uh, things that light up. It does look like we're on a uh, set of a spaceship in the 80s. Is that the era that this was all built? Uh, 70s, so. Okay. And a lot of this is original. Um, That said, it has seen some control system upgrades. This spaceship can be found at the Kangaroo Valley Power Station. It's located on the New South Wales south coast, about an hour and 20 minutes drive southeast of Wollongong. And it's part of what's called the Shoalhaven Scheme. So we're a fairly old scheme. It consists of two power stations or pumping and power stations, which is the Kangaroo Valley Station, which is where we're sitting now, and the Bendila Station, which is a, a bit down the road. This is Shay Rolls. He's the manager of the Shoalhaven Hydro Scheme, which has been operating since 1977. The scheme was built um, as a joint venture between the Sydney Water Catchment and uh, at the time it was the Electricity Commission New South Wales um, as a, a, a scheme to connect the Shoalhaven water to Greater Sydney water. Um, with that came the advantage of having a pump storage hydro system, so that's why the Energy Commission was involved in the build of the Shoalhaven scheme. Oh cool, we're finally talking about hydro. I've been waiting for this since episode one. I can bring my Pokemon references back now. You know, my Blastoise used to destroy gym leaders with hydro pump. Well, interestingly enough, Dom, hydro pump isn't just a great Pokemon move. It's also a relatively accurate description of how Shoalhaven works. So hydro pumps use water to spin a turbine, um, which spins a generator, which is producing electricity. Um, Generally, you will need uh, water above 
your site, stored water, large volumes of water, um, stored above the power station itself. So you're utilising the flow of water and the pressure of water to create energy in the turbine to spin the turbine. So you, you have the, the, the pond or the, the water storage above your, your station itself. Um, it runs through the turbines, which spins the turbines, spins a generator, produces electricity um, out to a water storage location downstream of the power station itself. For us being pumped storage hydro, um, we reverse our machines. Um, we have two different machines at the Shoalhaven scheme. We have reversible uh, turbines. We also have a turbine and pump unit separate. So um, when we're pumping, we're taking the water from the bottom water storage, uh, putting it through the pumps and pumping it back up to the original uh, water storage above the station itself. And there's an awful lot to this power plant, from the dam through to the turbines and even the transmission infrastructure that connects it all to the grid. And I got a bit of a tour of the place and what struck me was how you could actually hear the energy moving through the network. Uh, we're standing in front of our step-up transformer. So this is our transformer yard. The turbine spins a generator. And this is uh, where we step the, the power up from 16,000 volts to 330,000 volts to export onto the grid. And I'm hearing this crackle overhead. It's a little bit like um, you're having rice bubbles, you snap, crackle and pop, or a little bit like a prawn cracker on your tongue. What's uh, all the crackling I can hear above me? That crackling is, is and that, that noise that you're hearing is, is called corona. And it's just the energy flowing over the lines and, and the moisture in the air, and um, so the electricity on the lines. Are we safe to stand here? Absolutely. Up there, not so, but down here, absolutely. And does that hum mean that these are operating at the moment? Um, it means that there's electricity flowing on the lines, yeah. Is, yep. it, is it coming in or out? What's it doing? Um, at the moment, our, our units aren't running. Okay. So we would be importing power. Um, and that's just for running the auxiliary ancillary systems like the lifts, the, the lights, the you know, general lighting and power. So we'll be importing a very little amount of, of energy um, just to keep the lights on. Wow, it sounds almost a bit like a bad guy lair from one of the Bond movies. It very much well could be, although I didn't see any evidence of that. Although I feel like Batman might feel at home here because most of the power plant is actually underground. You've got these power lines connecting to these huge transformers on the side of the main building. Kind of looks like a big engine or something. And then we head inside and the scale of the place really starts to hit you. So where we're standing now, this is our operating floor. Um, there's two parts of it, the operating floor where our units sit. So you'll see that there's unit three and unit four. And what was, if we, if we come stand over here, we're physically standing on top of the unit itself. So this is the top cover for the generator. Okay. So our, our machine goes 30 meters down from this point. If you have a look over yeah. this edge here, just watch your helmet. That's how deep the station is. Kind of looks like uh, in Star Wars where they kind of, where uh, Vader tells Luke that he's his father. This is kind of the situation, it's like a little bit more concrete-y and less ceramic than that, but that's kind of the scope that we're looking at. Oh, spoiler alert, Zach! Well, the movie's been out for 40 years, Dom. You've, you've had your chance. I've been busy with other films. Like Flubber? Not just Flubber. I'll have you know that I'm into a wide range of critically acclaimed cinema. Yeah, there was that time you made me come over and watch the Tim Allen Santa Claus trilogy. Exactly my point. Well, back at the plant, Dom, and it's a huge drop from the operating floor that we're standing on. I know that 30 metres doesn't sound like much, but from the top, it's a long way down. So Shay actually took me all the way down, each level of the station, 
And there's a point where you're technically underwater in relation to the pond that's out the front of the facility. That sounds like it would make a great aquarium. You just need to find some thick glass and a few sharks. Mm. See, this is why they sent me to Shoalhaven and not you, Dom. I think a power station combined with an aquarium is a great idea. Anyway, by the time we got to the bottom level, we'd be about 20 metres underwater. However, the real highlight of the tour, and the main reason I came, was the turbine. So this is where we take the hydraulic energy, or the the energy coming from water, turn it into rotational energy, which spins our generator. So this here is the pipeline where the water's coming from Fitzroy Falls. So if you can imagine up at Fitzroy Falls, there's a pipeline that is, is, is plumbed into the side of Fitzroy Falls, and that pipe runs all the way down to this point. This big blue item here, is what's called the main valve, the turbine inlet valve. And what it's designed to do is to stop the water or control the water or stop it from entering the turbine. So currently that valve's shut and that's what's stopping the turbine from spinning. And the last thing I saw was the pump. And this is really what makes the whole facility work because once you've generated power, the water ends up in a pond at the bottom. And you can use cheap renewables, like in the middle of the day when there's heaps of solar, to pump the water back up the hill into the top dam. And where the pump is, it's like you're in the hull of a ship or something. Lots of pipes and things. And just like everything else, the scale is mind-blowing. This is our pump. So we've seen the turbine. We take water from Fitzroy Falls, run it through the turbine, and put it out at the pond out the front here um, to produce electricity. When we're pumping or returning that water back up, this is the pump that pumps it. So it's the same shaft line, the same generator. The generator just becomes a motor and we run this pump to pump the water from out the front from the tail bay back up to Fitzroy Falls. This pump moves 50 million litres of water an hour at 5,000 kPa. It's quite an impressive piece of equipment. 50 million litres an hour? Yeah, so to put that in perspective, a standard Olympic swimming pool is about 2.5 million litres. So it's moving a lot of water. So that's one Olympic swimming pool's worth of water every three minutes. That's crazy. What's even more crazy is that in terms of hydro projects in Australia, Shoalhaven is on the smaller side. The biggest by far is Snowy Hydro. While Shoalhaven can produce 240 megawatts, Snowy Hydro can produce over 4,000. So it's quite a big difference. I feel like everyone knows about Snowy Hydro, but how is this relevant to the energy transition? Well, I'm getting there, but... Before we do, I need to give you some history. Oh, I love a good history lesson. Will there be a quiz? Well, let's just wait and see. Well, the Shoalhaven scheme has been operating since the late 70s, and it really started in the wake of Snowy Hydro. So, if we wind the clock back to 1949, Australia was recovering from World War II, and we'd gone through a number of years of drought. So as a country, we were looking for nation-building projects to help farmers, and the solution was to create a massive pumped hydro scheme that could supply water for growers, but have the added benefit of powering homes. The engineering feats are really quite extraordinary. This is Brad Collis, and he literally wrote the book on hydro in Australia. It's called Snowy, The Making of Modern Australia. And even by today's standards, the scheme for Snowy Hydro was ambitious. So the scheme is um, an interconnected series of of, uh, reservoirs and and tunnels and aquifers in the Snowy uh, region, or the Snowy Mountain region. And 
the, the reason for that is that the water can be moved around the scheme according to different power stations according to where the need uh, might be. Initially the scheme was built to provide what they call base load or peak, peak period electricity for Sydney, Melbourne and Canberra. And the scale of Snowy Hydro is pretty incredible. It consists of nine power stations and 16 dams, and it included a complex network of underground tunnels and pumping stations. It was a huge engineering feat that took 25 years to build and saw around 100,000 people work across the project. There are the equivalent of, you know, five, six-storey high buildings under the mountain. And these are the, uh, the underground power stations and all the support facilities that, that go with that. To be doing that inside a mountain and then connecting all these extraordinary uh, power stations with under, uh, with under mountain tunnels uh, was a phenomenal engineering feat. And in fact, some of the techniques that were developed, um, some, some of the rock bolting techniques for the tunneling, for example, they were developed by engineers for the Snowy Scheme and it subsequently became um, adopted worldwide. The Snowy Hydro Scheme was also hugely important to the growth of Australia after the war, with much of the workforce made up by refugees from Europe. These, these young men, uh, this was a chance you know, to leave war-torn Europe and, and rebuild their lives and have a second chance. And when people are given a second chance, they, they worked at it. It wasn't a place where you went for entertainment. I mean, it was work, work, work. When you were on the scheme, you were there for two years, you signed up for two years, and it was not quite a seven days a week, but it was not far off. Um, uh, you were there to work, you were there to make really good money, and you did, you could set yourself up for life. Now, while there were some flow-on effects from Snowy to other hydro projects within Australia, Brad says the unfortunate part is that many of the senior engineers left for other jobs overseas. That meant we didn't quite capitalise on the knowledge and expertise that the Snowy Mountain Scheme gave us. But it did show us that large, ambitious projects are indeed possible. What the Snowy showed is we can and need to be bold in our vision, in our thinking. I wish people could look at the Snowy Scheme and understand what it achieved because it built Australia, it built us as a nation um, and it showed us that we have how to do it and it showed us that we can do it. And that is the most important lesson I think that we need to, to take today because we are facing um, potentially existential you know, crisis if we don't uh, address uh, what is happening to the, to the planet. And energy is at the heart of it. We need energy, but we need new forms of energy that take us into the future. And all of this makes the Shoalhaven scheme much more valuable because Shoalhaven was started in the early 70s and opened in 1977, just three years after Snowy Hydro was finished. And what's surprising about all of this is, despite all that ambition we had as a nation for the decades following the war, in the early 80s, we kind of stopped building pumped hydro projects altogether. Why is that? Oh, Dom, you're still here. Yeah, still sticking around. You taking notes on the history? Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm following. Okay, well, most of our existing pumped hydro projects were quite expensive and funded almost entirely by the government. And they take a long time to build. So they take a lot of ambition at a political level to get going, but once they're built, they can last generations. If they last so long, why don't we just build more of them? Well, Dom, I'm getting to that, because as it turns out, a lot of investment is going into building both new pumped hydro facilities and expanding the ones we already have. Shoalhaven was a much smaller project than Snowy Hydro, but it's very important to the future of our energy grid. And what's interesting about Shoalhaven is the designers back in the 70s had the foresight to realise its future potential. 
because they actually engineered it to be expanded. So that's exactly what's happening. Origin has undertaken a feasibility study for a new power station at Shoalhaven that will double its capacity. And the way we're doing that is by building the station underground and uh, using a higher um, head or the height of the mountain to extract more of that kinetic energy through the turbine. This is Matt Hallam, head of technical support and development for Origin's energy supply and operation team. And it's really Matt's job to look into the expansion of Shoalhaven. So we'll have a cavern that the turbines will sit in, which will be a couple hundred metres underground. We'll have roads that will be built down into it, like similarly to what you might find in an underground car park. You'll have sort of spiralling roads going down to a, a cavern underground, and in there there'll be a single turbine, a transformer, and the water pipe work going through and then that will go out to um, it'll connect two dams together and we'll simply cycle the water backwards and forwards between the two dams so it's a very simple projecting concept but as you can imagine building kilometers of underground roads etc is a, a bit of an engineering feat this kind of project is a big undertaking, but it shows that while pumped hydro is an older technology, it remains vital for the energy grid moving forward. Because what I found fascinating is that pumped hydro is really just a giant battery. How do you figure that? I'll let Matt explain. The idea of pump storage is time-shifting energy. So you, um, what we refer to as variable renewable energy is solar and wind, and they come when they come, right? The sun shines when the sun's going to shine every day or not if there's clouds, and the wind's going to blow when the wind's going to blow. That doesn't align with when you want to turn your kettle on. So what we have to do is then be able to move that energy to more productive times rather than everybody needing to shift all of their energy use to just when the renewables are available. So being able to store that energy and then release it when you want to sit down and watch the football at night or, or whatever it is that you want to do, that you're not having to make those things just work when the energy is available. Right, okay. So you're telling me that pumped hydro is the solution I'm looking for to running my Christmas lights on a renewable grid. Do you ever wonder how those blokes who slogged it out building snowy hydro feel about all their hard work being used to power your Christmas lights? You know, I reckon they'd be honoured. I bet you they sang as they worked, Good King Wenceslas looked out on the feast of Stephen. Good King Wenceslas was the first carol that came to mind. It isn't for you? No. Oh, okay. Well, I'm a traditionalist. Okay. Well, anyway, AEMO, the Australian energy market operator, says that dispatchable power, that is energy that can be generated whenever the market requires it, is the most pressing need in our energy market to manage the significant variations caused by wind and solar and to fill the void left by coal. And the issue isn't just that you're turning on too many lights at night, Dom, but that we're actually generating an awful lot of power in the day that we don't want to go to waste. Absolutely. So there's two things. You can have a deficit at night or when the wind's not blowing or when the weather's been bad. Um, and you can also have an oversupply. So in um, various different places, they're finding the need to sort of get um, solar generation and other, other renewable to actually wind back and not produce as much as what they could because we're physically not using that amount of power at this time. So unless we have storage come in like pump storage or batteries, then you can't absorb that excess generation. And it's what we call solar spill or renewable energy spill and it's lost opportunity. And then we end up, um, if we don't store it and reuse it, we end up then having to use 
coal or gas or something else to generate at night when we've let that free renewable go past during the day. What about lithium batteries? Because as I found out on my trip to Araring, there's going to be a huge battery built on that site. Couldn't we just roll out more of those? Well, I'm glad you brought that up, Dom, because although pumped hydro is a vital piece to the puzzle, it's not the only solution. But what pumped hydro offers to our energy market is duration. Because as long as there's water, you can keep generating energy no matter what time of day it is. Yeah, so batteries are getting bigger. So um, in terms of the duration, the big battery in South Australia that was built a few years ago only actually runs for about an hour. Um, the, the battery that's being um, contemplated at Araring at the moment will run for four hours. The Shoalhaven plant, as it currently stands, can run for 28 hours. So it gives you sort of an understanding, and Snowy Hydro is several days that they can run for in terms of, um, or sorry, into the weeks, in fact. Um, so... It is about scale. You, you, if you think about the size of a dam, you can store a lot of energy in a dam, a lot of volume there. When you think about batteries, um, there's a few things you have to build them. You know, they're all made of tiny little double AIDS type cells. So you've got to get enough raw materials to do that. Lithium manufacturing capability to keep expanding and building more versus, and then they will last um, anything up to 20 years, depending on how many times you're cycling them. And a battery has a life in terms of the more times you cycle it, the faster you use it. So it's a bit like the odometer in your car. The more you drive it, the quicker it wears out. Pumped hydro doesn't really care. As long as you have reasonable amounts of rainfall and you've got water in your storage, you just keep pumping it backwards and forwards. So batteries and pumped hydro are complementary. We need both. It's not a case of one or the other. This is Andrew Blakers, an engineering professor at the Australian National University. About three quarters of net new um, generation capacity built each year around the world is now solar and wind. And in Australia, it's 99%. But solar and wind are variable. They're not always available and the sun never shines at night. So obviously you need overnight storage and you also need storage for at times a few days. So you go to pumped hydro for that sort of storage. For short-term storage of a few hours in um, this or that location, you might choose batteries. Together, they work um, very, very well. In 2021, Andrew and his co-authors published research which assessed the viability and capacity for pumped hydro storage, and the findings were really promising. Um, the key takeaway was that Australia, and indeed almost every country, has vastly more pumped hydro storage opportunities than will be required to support 100% renewable energy so we found about 4,000 off-river pumped hydro sites uh, all around Australia. Most of them are along the Great Dividing Range because you need hills to separate the upper and lower reservoirs by anywhere between 400 and 800 metres. Um, all of the sites we identified are outside national parks because we didn't look inside national parks and other protected areas. And preferably they are not too far from transmission and cities and loads and people. And uh, of course, the Great Dividing Range is close to where most Australians live, all the way around from North Queensland to the to South Australia and Tasmania in addition. So no rivers need to be dammed. And Australia has about 300 times uh, as many of these sites as needed to support a 100% renewable energy system based on solar and wind. 
While pumped hydro is an important component in the renewable energy transition, it's not a complete solution to our storage and backup needs. Batteries, the lithium-ion kind, are also a key part to that mix. And AEMO actually says that most homes in Australia will eventually need a home battery to support solar installations in our new energy market. You know, going off the price of batteries needed just to run my Christmas snow globes, I can't imagine how expensive a battery to power my home would be. Sure. If you don't have a Christmas snow globe, though, maybe something slightly more relatable is if you have battery-operated power tools, you'd know that the battery is often the most expensive component. But eventually those costs will come down. Uh, I don't think they are really expensive anymore. And we're seeing massive supply at grid scale and take up at household level, not anywhere near the level of take up that we've seen for solar. This is Bruce Mountain from the Victoria Energy Policy Centre at Victoria University. Oh, I remember Bruce well. He has such a great name. As I say, I think that the challenge now is, yes, uh, ongoing price reductions in storage, but even more the commercial model for the sale of it selling relatively large capital items retail without a lot of competition in supply, without a lot of suppliers, with expertise, with something of a constrained supply of, of batteries, stationary batteries uh, are losing out to EV. There's huge demand. So in spite of all that, in spite of the lithium and cobalt and nickel challenges, we're still seeing uh, packaged up solar battery bundles that are competitive. So... It's competitive now for many households. I think it's going to happen now anyway. And I can only see upside. And the speed of rolling out batteries is why there are so many big battery projects being talked about around the world. Plus, those batteries can be built almost anywhere, whereas hydropower needs to be built in mountainous areas. Bruce, mountainous areas. Well done, Dom. I was very proud of that one. Uh, But speed of rollout then is the major difference between lithium batteries and hydro? Exactly. While it can take decades to build large pumped hydro projects that could last 100 years, lithium batteries can be rolled out quickly and they can be positioned wherever they'll provide the most benefit. The best location when you think about putting a battery in is, is where it's generally required to give not only system security, but also access to uh, the, the name. This is Steve Rigby the General Manager of Generation and Development at Origin. So you'll put it at a strong location on the network, uh, and what that will do is allow you to use that battery to stabilise the network should it have any excursions, but also gives you access to the main cities to generate that energy and, and put, it, put it forward. So as you told us, Dom, there are plans for Araring to get a 700 megawatt battery, which could start to come online in 2024. And Bill Truscott, Origin's group manager for asset development, says the biggest challenge with this project is actually getting all the battery cells into the country. Battery cells are an interesting beast. Uh, you, you kind of got to manufacture them and deliver them to site on a just-in-time basis, which they start degrading as soon as they come off the assembly line. Um, so the ideal situation you end up in is you are delivering batteries as they're required to be mounted on site and you back energise those batteries as quickly as possible. And all of that takes time um, for just the first stage of our battery, which is roughly a 1,000 megawatt hours. There's, there's 12 to 14 months delivery time to get all those cells into the country, manufactured into the country. Part of this challenge with batteries in our current market is that so many manufacturers are trying to get their hands on them. 
Whether it's for EVs, home batteries, or even large-scale projects, batteries are a key commodity for our electrified future. Oh no, I hope my hoarding of double A's hasn't contributed to the problem. These batteries are much larger. Ah, right, like D batteries. Even bigger. I don't think I've seen anything bigger than D batteries at the supermarket. Do they not sell these ones there? Uh, no. As I said, they're hard to get in the country. I don't think they'll be at supermarkets anytime soon. Okay, that's a shame. That's where I go. Well, Dom, when it comes to these big battery projects, Bill says it's actually making it difficult to forecast the cost and development because there's so much volatility in the market. But these constraints are not stopping the rollout of new batteries. Everybody in the world wants batteries. For cars, for stationary energy, for for pretty well every uh, electrification reason that we've been talking about. Um, So we are seeing uh, a lot of volatility in the battery cost space. We're seeing uh, the price of lithium carbonate has increased exponentially over the last 12 months. Um, And that drives quite a significant uh, level of volatility in the cost of those batteries. And in fact, we are now seeing um, our suppliers wanting to connect their supply cost back to that lithium carbonate index. But despite the short-term challenges, these big battery projects, along with the rollout of EVs, are likely to bring down the cost of batteries for everyone. You know, I really wanted to get an EV. I think it would really add to my renewable street cred. I'm not sure if you have any kind of street cred. Hey, I'll have you know, I was in the cool group in high school. And who else was in this group? Uh, It was just me and the librarian. Very exclusive. Very cool. Well, you should have said, I take it all back. But Dom, remember earlier in the series when we mentioned vehicle to grid? Vaguely. It's been a bit of a busy few weeks. Why don't you refresh my memory? Well, most of us will eventually own batteries in some form, Dom, but they might not always be attached directly to our homes. So there's a good chance that many of us might actually just buy an electric car. Because there's EVs that are now hitting the market that can not only function as a car, but they can also power your home or feed power into the grid when it's needed. So this is known as vehicle to grid or vehicle to home. And when it comes to powering your home, an EV could actually keep the lights on for days. So you're telling me I could just plug my entire Christmas lights display into my car. Does that mean I could take my festive cheer everywhere? Well, I'd prefer if you parked your car in your garage, you know, off the street with with the door shut. But then how will people see the Christmas lights? Yeah, that's, that's my point. Oh, just for me to enjoy. Yeah, In the future, when you're at home, you could plug in your EV and the power that you use could come directly from your car. It's still a while away, but it could definitely change our entire energy system. So it's not yet widely available. When it is, batteries will have, in a car, a great deal of storage capacity. Uh, If they're full, they could completely power a home, even without solar, for several days. Adding in solar effectively, I imagine, as long as you don't take a long journey every day, infinite supply. You could just keep on going with that. So it will be a proposition. I think it's a bit of a way yet. And even when it's there, the power export capability will be limited by the grid's ability to import. And um, you'll have far more power capability in the motor vehicle than you have the grid able to handle it. Uh, So it'll have a power and an energy injection opportunity. But um, I probably wouldn't hesitate getting a, a battery most particularly a solar battery bundle where you don't need to put the dollars up front yourself and add a motor vehicle in due course. Zach, all of this is interesting, but how do we decide where to spend the money as a nation? 
Should we spend more money on batteries or on pumped hydro? Well, according to Andrew, like when kids get soft drink refills at a buffet, what we'll need is a mix of a few different options. Lithium batteries are a great short-term solution to stabilising our grid. They also respond instantly to changes. But in the long term, we'll need bigger projects like pumped hydro to provide that constant energy we'll need to keep the lights on all through the night. Uh, Water is a very easy and common and non-toxic material available widely everywhere. Uh, Electrochemical, so batteries are not. So the notion of a very large scale storage in batteries is difficult, not just because it costs five or 10 times more than pumped hydro, but because a very large amount of lithium and cobalt and nickel and other metals uh, is required, um, which might or might not become available. There are different battery chemistries, but uh, overwhelmingly um, for long-term storage, you use water, pumped hydro, and for high power short-term storage, and for electric vehicles, you go to batteries. And another important difference is that batteries last maybe 10 or 15 years before they need to be um, recycled, whereas a pumped hydro system um, will last hundreds of years if it's properly built um, with periodic refurbishments of the uh, electromechanical machinery every 40 or 50 years. If you go back in 50 or 100 or 300 years, the, all of the dams and tunnels and reservoirs will still be there And if they're properly maintained, they'll still be safe and they'll still be functional. So it's a very long-term, for the future, storage solution with very low environmental impact. Well, speaking of batteries and EVs, there's a lot more businesses and even sporting clubs which are looking to improve their energy efficiency through the use of new technology. And most of us wouldn't think of energy in sport, but as it turns out, most sports have a lot to do in this space. Oh, this sounds exciting. You know how much I love the Brisbane Lions. Do we get to talk about AFL in the next episode? We might, and, uh, you know, at least that's more relevant than Flubber. Oh, we'll be talking about Flubber too. I'll I'll work that in for sure. So in the next episode, we're going to look at how sports are adapting to the energy transition and how each of us can help drive change at a local level. The whole pursuit, I guess, of motorsport is, you know, you're always developing new components and engines and technologies. So this is just really, you know open the floodgates on a whole new avenue of of what we can do in that space. So What is the show that questions everything you thought you knew about energy? And it's brought to you by Origin. Production and scripting by the team at Lawson Media. If you'd like to learn more about batteries, whether it's for your home or the grid, I'll put a link in the show notes. You can learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes at originenergy.com.au forward slash so what. Or just hit the subscribe button in the podcast app you're in right now. And if you'd like to join my Christmas caroling group this year, shoot me a message and start rehearsing Good King Wentzless now. You sure you don't want to join us, Zach? I've never been more sure of anything in my life. Good King Wentzless looked out on the Feast of Stephen. Gonna cut you off right there, Dom. This series is hosted by me, Zach Manda. Carol's provided by Dom Fay. We can't wait to speak to you next time.